0: The third chapter of Exodus. Uh, we'll be reading the whole chapter. So, Exodus 3. As we read from the Bible, please let us remind ourselves that this is God's Word. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I, it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, You will worship God on this mountain. So Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, The God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abram, Isaac and Jacob appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I've promised to bring you up out of this misery, Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us make a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will before perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will bring the Egyptians, make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask a neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians, the word of God.
1: Can I ask you a very rude question. Do you know God? Now, that is a rude question to ask people who have gathered in church on a Sunday morning, and it would be an easy thing to assume that everybody that's here does know God, but I'm not going to make that assumption. I'm not asking you if you know about God. I'm asking you if you really know true and living God, the one who made the heavens, and the, if you know him on his term, not on your term. And have you entered into a personal, living, intimate, and growing relationship with him? Many of you would answer in the affirmative to that question, probably most of you, and that's wonderful, I believe you. But let me ask you a second question then, if you do know God, do you appreciate the privilege of knowing the true and the living God, knowing him by name, knowing him in a relationship? opens himself up to friendship. Now, let's remember where we are. We're in the Old Testament. First of all, the Old Testament is a book, listen carefully, that is about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a Christian book. It is our book. And we have seen so far in the book of Exodus that the book of Exodus, which is the story of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt for the promised land in Canaan, is a book about Jesus and about the gospel that we so love, we've just sung. Now today in the story of Exodus, we're just beginning, and so if you're here for the first time, you haven't missed much. The, the previous two talks are online if you'd like to catch up, but today we meet the Lord. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, you can read them and not really see the Lord, although we have seen, we've dug deep in the hidden hand of the Lord, at work, behind everything that happened. But today he takes center stage, today the one who stands behind all of history, the great king of kings, the one who who will direct the Exodus in later chapters, the mastermind behind the whole rescue operation, and the one who directs your life and mine in its minute. That's the one that we meet today in the pages of Exodus chapter 3. And so first of all, the Lord calls his rescuer, the rescuer calls. Let's remember that for 40 years the people had suffered in Egypt. For 40 years they had cried out in agony, according to chapter For 40 years it seemed that God was inactive. And then just go back, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, to chapter 2 and verse 24, where we saw that God remembered his promises made centuries before. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And then we saw in verse 25 that beautiful verse that God, after hearing his people, he saw his people and he knew his people, as the ESV puts it. He was concerned about them, is how the NIV puts it. And so last, last week the chapter ended with the news that God will act to save his... uh, He's not going to act because his people nagged him for long enough, and eventually he kind of gives way because they've worn him down. He is going to act because he is bound by his own word. He is bound by his own promises, and he always does what he says he will do. And so in the first six verses of chapter 3, he takes the initiative, and the angel of the Lord in verse 2 calls to Moses, And God appears in the flames of a fire that doesn't consume a bush, that is a blaze, for God controls nature, and the so-called laws of nature are actually the commands of God, and so it's an easy thing for God to burn a bush and for a bush to not burn. And so Moses goes over to the not-burning bush to investigate and to respond to the call of his name. And he replies, he discovers in verse 5 a very important fact about God. Look at verse 5. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandal, for the place where you are standing is holy. What an important thing to recognize about the living God. You don't waltz in his presence, for he is unapproachable and blindingly holy. And therefore the ground is holy. Take off your sandals, shut your mouth, for you are about to be addressed by the living who made the and the, And so Moses does really the only appropriate thing that he can do, he takes off his sandals. And he hides his face. And Moses recognizes that God is not his buddy, that God is not his genie, as God is treated by many, that God is not Father Christmas. It is an awesome and a terrible thing to encounter the living. It is an an encounter that you will only survive if he allows it. And so the, the rescuer is now commanded. In verses 7 to 12, God speaks and tells Moses of his plan, tells him that the prayers have been heard and that action will follow, promises will be kept, and that he has come down to rescue them and to give them the land, the wonderful land that he had promised. Verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said, God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And so follow no fewer than five objections from Moses. Verse 11, who am I? Verse 13, who are you? Verse chapter 4 and verse 1, they will not believe me. Chapter 4 and verse 10, I am not eloquent. Chapter 4 and verse 13, actually I really just don't want to go. Five times, but God is insistent. And Moses will know that God is with him. Verse 12, when they reach the mountain and worship God. On that day, Moses will see what the rescue was for, not so much for the Israelites but for God to be worshipped and centralized. God is always acting for his own name. Who am I, chapter 3 and verse 11, that I should go? Who are you, chapter 3 and verse 13? Who should I say you are? Look at verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is your name? What shall I say to them? And so the Lord, secondly, reveals his name. Now, names signify important things about people, especially in the ancient world. Uh, less so in our culture, I think. Sometimes our names mean something, uh, sometimes they don't. The name Caris means grace or, or gratitude or thanksgiving. The name Philip, I'm just nervous to insult somebody at this point, but the name Philip means a lover of horses. I've got a friend called Philip. He hates horses. He's terrified of them. His name has got nothing to do with who he is. If you were here at Christmas time, you might remember that I shared with you that I thought that my name was appropriately chosen because my parents told me when I was young that Grant means great. I thought that was apt. And especially in comparison to my brother, whose name is Bruce. Any Bruce's in the room? Because Bruce means in the bush or out of the bush. It was only recently, though, that I discovered that my name does mean great, but in the sense of Lord, so it's still apt. But in verse 14 in chapter 3, we get one of the most significant moments in the Bible. One of the most magnificent and important moments in the Bible that is easily just skipped over. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me. Here is the self-revelation of God. It is striking in the book of Exodus that not once are we given the name of either of the pharaohs that enslave God's people. we only just told the king of the, of the Egyptians he's called Pharaoh by his title, but we're never given his name, but we are given the name of the king of kings. And it is God himself who gives us, so to speak, his Christian name. His name is not God. His name is I Am. God is his job description, but I Am is his name. And in giving us his name, it is such a profound thing. Much ink has been spilled over this, and I can't hope to do it justice this morning. But by giving us his name, nobody names God, he names himself. By giving us his name, he is saying, I am accessible. He is saying we can meet and enter into a relationship with one another. We can know each other. For giving your name makes it possible to encounter another and to communicate with another. I wonder if you thought about this, not only that, not only does giving your name open you to relationship, but do you know it also opens you to the possibility of being wounded, of being hurt. For by God giving his name, he opens himself up to his name being blasphemed and rejected. And so one Christian commentator said, naming entails the possibility and the likelihood of suffering. It's a vulnerable thing to give somebody name. Now, the name, what is his name? Because it it, it looks like a few different things. There are three different ways in which it's put here in verse 14 and 15. In verse 14, he says, I am who I am, which can also be translated. It's the verb to be, by the way. His name is not a proper noun, like the name Grant. His name is a verb. The the verb, I am who I am, can also be translated, I will be what I will be, or I am what I will be, or even I will be what I am. Well, that doesn't help us, does it? The rest of verse 14, he just uses the, the phrase, I am. He doesn't say, I am. Look at the end of verse 4. I am has sent me. And in verse 15, he calls himself the Lord. Now, if you have an ESV version of the Bible in front of you, there's a very helpful footnote um, next to the word Lord in verse 15. But I've put it on the screen for the footnote says this. The the word Lord, when spelled with capital letters, stands for the divine name YHWH, which is here connected with the verb higher to be. I'm sure that many of you know this but it's worth saying for those who may not. Whenever you encounter the word Lord in the Old Testament in small capital, what the translators, the English translators are showing you is that the word there is actually YHWH. And the the, the problem with the Hebrew language is that it is a consonantal language. It's got no vowel. And so how do you pronounce YHWH? Some people pronounce it Jehovah. Other people pronounce it Yahweh. We're not sure how to pronounce it. And so the English translators of our Bible are being transparent at that point. They're saying, look, it's the word YHWH. We're not too sure how to translate it. But we're going to indicate that it's that word by putting it in small caps in the text. But will you notice also that there is a formula that goes with the name of God, which comes three times in this passage, verse 6, verse 15, and verse 16. God says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now let's think for a little bit, what is the significance of God's name? Now again, we could be here all day. This I want to mention three things which won't do it justice, but let's think about these. The first thing that we must say about the name of God is it shows that God is self-existent. I am what I am can also be understood as I cause what I caused. That is, God is the first cause of all things. He is unmade. He has not been made, just like He isn't named by anybody, He is not made by anybody. Instead, He has made all things, for He is self-existent. He owns, therefore, everything and everyone, including you this morning. For He is the great God who is self-defining and cannot be compared to anything. He is entirely original and other to anything that has been created. That is, He is incomparable and cannot be compared to anything else. God is not like a king. Kings ought to be like God. God is not like a father. Fathers ought to be like God. And it's a true thing, is it not, psychologically, that children develop their vision and view of God by virtue of their relationship with their father, even if their father is absent. That will impact on their view of God. For all things, all fathers take their cue from God. God does not take his cue from anybody. God is not like a husband. All husbands ought to be like God. Gulp. God cannot be manipulated. He cannot be corrupted. He cannot be controlled. He is independent. Theologians talk about this word. I hope it's on the screen. I can't remember if I put it on the... There it is. The aseity of God. There's a good word. Go and dazzle your neighbors. The aseity of God. It means everything other than God depends on God. But God depends on nothing besides himself, for he is I am who I am. Here's the second thing I want you to see about God, about the name of God, and that is that God is relational. Not only is he self-existent and completely independent, but he is relational. He is the Lord, he is the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, he continues to and chooses to extend the friendship that he had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now to Moses, and also to us. Here is the God who enters into committed relations and who condescends to make promises to people. He is relational. How unique that is. You know Islam, by way of contrast, Islam claims to believe the Old Testament, yet it does not accept this revelation of God's name as Yahweh. Islam has got 99 names for Allah, but Yahweh is not one of them, even though the Old Testament uses the name Yahweh more than 5,000 times. Allah has got 99 names, and at the same time he has no name, for he is not personal and in the same way that Yahweh is personal. Allah's names are his attributes and his characteristics. He is Allah the Great or Allah the Merciful, but he doesn't have a personal name. It's never revealed. Very, very different to the God of the Bible. God gives his Christian name because he is relational and he is personal. God is self-existent. God is relational. Thirdly, God is faithful. The God who revealed himself to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God who revealed himself to Moses. He is predictable. He is constant. Who he was yesterday, he is today and will be tomorrow. And the wonderful implication of that, dear friends, is that God is faithful. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is no chaos with God. There is no caprice with God. He's not capricious, changeable, unpredictable depending on his mood. He's a God of order. You can trust him for he is constant and reliable. How amazing that this God would reveal himself to Moses and has revealed himself to people like him. How different this God is. He is self-existent. We are dependent. He is supremely relational. We break relation. He is faithful. We are unpredictable and inconstant. Now, there's a very important implication of this amazing self-revelation of God, dear friends. It's this. To think of God in any other terms than those that he has revealed himself in is idolatry. Can I say that again? We are not permitted to conceive of God according to our own thoughts. We are to be bound by the self-revelation. I know we know somebody in our life who has said to us on numerous occasions, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. What a dreadful blasphemy. Who do you think you are thinking of God according to your own term? As though God is only allowed to be as much as you can imagine him to be. And it always interests me that the people who think of God like dot 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 always conjure a God who only ever approves of their lifestyle and never disagrees. Don't you think that's curious? That's not a God I can worship. God self-reveal. God is not going to agree with you. God is going to correct you. God is going to call you to repentance. God is going to say this way and not that way. That is a God we can worship. And so we are not to free we are not free to think of God how we like for God has revealed him and for us to invent a God of our own imagination is an appalling blasphemy. He has told us his name. He has revealed to us something of his nature. We are to be bound by God's self-revelation and to accept him on his own terms. And as we'll see in the weeks as the weeks go by, that one of the great purposes in the book of Exodus is that Israel and Egypt will learn what God is like. When God reveals himself as the great I am, that is not the full bottle on the subject of who God is. We need the rest of the Bible, the rest of the book of Exodus, for God himself to unpack that for us, so that we can start to understand who God really is. But the Lord's name has been revealed, and that is who Moses is to say he has sent has sent him to the Israelite, And so verse 17, or verse 16, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to him and said, I have watched over you. I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery to, in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Megabytes and the Gigabyte." And so Moses has got wonderful news for the Hebrew. The elders, God tells him, will listen to him. And then he is to go with the elders to the king. But you're not going to get so lucky with the king. For verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand, strike the Egypt with all the wonders that I'll perform And after that. So the Lord calls his rescue. The Lord reveals his name. And lastly, the Lord provides for Moses. Let's have a look at chapter 4 now. I hope you can see it in front of you. Perhaps... Uh, Corin, perhaps you can jump to it on the screen, I'm going to read the first nine. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff. He the Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his skin was leprous, become whiter. Now put it back into your So Moses put his hand back into the cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the... Then the Lord said, If they do not believe or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second sign. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. What if they won't listen to me? I know you've just said that they will, but what if you're wrong? Can you imagine saying that to the living God? Isn't God kind to most? I would have zotted him at that, sp- that point and chosen somebody else. God, you can always co- <laughs> go... Well, let me, let me help you. And so God gives him three impressive signs to validate his ministry. Three laws of nature-defying signs, because remember, he is the God who can burn a tree and not let it burn. First, the staff turns into a snake and back again. Second, his hand becomes leprous and is healed again. And then the water becomes blood. The Lord's generous provision for Moses. Well, surely that is a slam dunk. Moses is ready. He's armed with the name of God. He's got a mission that's clear. He's been given three miraculous signs that he can perform. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And here we get the fourth objection. Moses has never been a natural preacher. He doesn't have the gift of the gab. He never went to elocution lessons. But the Lord is unimpressed. And so in verse 11, uh, we are given a reminder. The Lord is the creator. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouth? Who made them deaf or mute? Is it not I? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I? The Lord. Now go, I'll help you speak. The Lord made the mouth, and therefore the Lord can enable speech. Can I just say as a sidebar, friends, it is worth noting that disability comes from the Lord. Can you accept a God like who gives disabilities? That's what these verses teach. Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I? Do you think that your disability is a mistake from the Lord? What an extraordinary thought that is. What an extraordinary God that is. There isn't any detail about you, including your body, your constitution, your ailments your limitations, your genes, that is not controlled by the Lord. This is who I am, who is in charge of the minute detail of each person's life. God is not stupefied by the amount of details that there are to handle and manage in the world today, for he is the great I am. And he doesn't ask Moses to do something that he won't enable him to do. If the Lord wants you to do something, he'll give you what you need for the task. I don't want to, verse 13, is the final objection. Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Here, yeah, his true heart is revealed and unmasked. He's run out of excuses. He's gone through his checklist. God has answered them all. He can't come back. And now we hear the truth. So the Lord calls his bluff. God is so patient with Moses. Verse 14, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. He said, what about brother? Ar- your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad. You shall speak to him. And put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and will teach. He will speak to the people for you, and it'll be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God. Too. But take the staff in your hands. Perform the signs. There's a lovely phrase in Chosa which says "Apelile." Apelile means there are no more words. I've got no more objections. Okay, God, you win. I've I've, I've thrown the book at you, and you've answered everything. And so Moses falls silent. Now, friends. What are we to make of this story, and how does it interface with our lives? I started by asking you that rude question, do you really know God? I'm really asking you, do you really know Jesus? That's what I'm asking. And although Moses, it is true that Moses points us towards Jesus as God's perfect rescuer, there is a very significant difference between Moses and Jesus. For unlike Moses, I want you to see Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Jesus is given the name. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. All sandals should be taken off. At the name, every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Can you see that the New Testament reveals Jesus as Yahweh? He is given the name that is above it Moses is not given that name. The fullest extent of the knowledge of God that is available to human beings is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is Yahweh. Have you entered into a living, personal, growing, intimate relationship with Jesus? Can you say that you know him personally? And will you notice something else about the name of Jesus from Acts chapter 4 and verse 12? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. Under Heaven, given to mankind, by which we must be, the all-powerful relational, faithful God is revealed perfectly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought us rescue by the great sign and wonder of his death and resurrection and there's one last New Testament verse that I want to show you back in chapter before we get there back in chapter three of Exodus and verse twelve there's a lovely little promise that God makes that is easy to skip over. Let me read it to you again, Exodus three verse twelve God said, "I will be with you the great God, who is all-powerful, relational, and faithful, I will be with you." Do you know that corresponds with something in the New Testament as well? Matthew 28 and verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you. Isn't that a wonderful? The promise that God made to Moses for his ministry of rescue and redemption and salvation is the same promise that Jesus, in his own name, makes to followers of Jesus. That as we go and introduce people to the salvation that God has provided, in Jesus is with us. I can't speak very eloquently, Jesus. I actually just don't want to do it, but I'm with going Go and do it.